Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus Podcast, the Macro Matters Edition. My name is Ira Jersey. I'm the chief. U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. With me in the Bloomberg Radio Podcast Studio at 731 Lexington Avenue in New York at Bloomberg headquarters is Erica Edelberg. She is our chief mortgage strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence and also Angelo Monolatos, our chief Canadian rate strategist and uh, and helps me out on the U.S. as well. Thanks very much, guys, for coming into the studio. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having us. <laughs> so we're, we're not used to doing this together. We're used to being in uh, separate places and, and on our own computers at, at home. So this will be a little bit different for us today. But let's talk a little bit about uh, what's gone on in the markets over the last couple of weeks, and in particular, how it might be affecting the mortgage market. So mortgage rates now, 30-year conventional mortgages, 6-ish percent at the moment, uh, Erica. And some important data came out um, just yesterday talking about the, uh, um, you know, how how much prepayments are going on in the mortgage market. Talk a little bit about the mortgage-backed security performance over the over recent weeks, especially with rates as high as they are. Yeah, today actually Freddie Mac published their 30-year commitment rate at 5.89 percent, I believe, which they say is the highest they've seen since 2008. So we are definitely in an environment where, you know, maybe rates aren't high by century-long standards, but they're definitely the highest we've seen in, you know, 15 years or 14 years, whatever that is. And it's taking a toll on the housing market. It's taking the toll on consumer confidence. Uh, it's taking a toll on, um, you know, home sales and turnover for prepayments. And with most of the mortgage market now trading at an average price of around $91, this is translating into slow prepayment speeds, which isn't great for mortgage fundamental value. And of course, mortgages are already facing the headwinds of Federal Reserve runoff, which has really kind of um, pushed mortgage performance to by far the worst we've seen um, pretty much ever on an absolute basis, and since really times of major stress like 2008 on an excess return basis. So all this is adding up to a really tough time for mortgage-backed securities, and it's hard to anticipate you know, a lot of positive news in the near term. So let, let's pull back the curtain a little bit here, because last week you said to me, hey, you know, it would be pretty interesting, and I think this is important, to talk about some of the dynamics of quantitative tightening and the some of the market structure impact that um, th- that quantitative tightening is having. So with the runoff of mortgage-backed securities and the treasuries from the Federal Reserve's portfolio, those securities come back into the market um, by issuance by um, by either different issuers such as Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or, or uh, the Treasury Department in the case of treasuries. So, but we put out a piece just this morning where we looked at what's gone on within the um, uh, what, what, what may go on going forward uh, to the Bloomberg Aggregate Index and the various weights. And the Bloomberg Aggregate Index is the most widely used index for fixed income investors in, in the United States and in U.S. dollar-denominated debt. So, you know, what is your feeling? And, and may, maybe, Angela, I might ask you to pop in here quickly. 
what is going to be the effect on the various weights of treasuries, uh, agency mortgages, and corporates over the next year and a half, assuming that our forecast for QE and, and issuance pan out? What, what, what are those changes? And then, Erica, I'll come to you and ask, wh- wh- how might that affect demand for, the, for your asset class? And then I'll talk a little bit about how it will affect demand for mine. Yeah, so similar to the uh, previous quantitative tightening period from 2017 to 2019, we're going to see the Treasury uh, percent, uh, Treasury share of the aggregate index increase, uh, mortgage-backed security share of the aggregate index actually decrease, and uh, corporate stay more so where it is, uh, more so where it is today. However, yet yeah, the the difference between Treasuries and mortgages is going to be the that spread there is going to widen for sure, and uh, if you look at it on a risk basis, that is going to be uh, even. That's going to be that divergence is going to be even larger when in risk terms. So, so I, I guess Erica, why is the uh, the mortgage share falling? And it has to do with index construction. So, and you noted this last week, and I think this is very important for our listeners, particularly those who uh, allocate between the different sectors, to understand what those dynamics are. So, so why will mortgages be falling vis-a-vis treasuries? Well, the main reason that mortgages are going to fall versus treasuries in the constructed Bloomberg aggregate bond index is because from the beginning of time, really, the Treasury, the, the Federal Reserve has invested in treasuries. So the Bloomberg aggregate index has subtracted the amount of treasuries held by the Fed from what considered it considered the weight of treasuries in the index. As the Federal Reserve lets that treasury portfolio run off and buys fewer treasuries, that will, effect, in effect, increase the amount of public supply of treasuries, and that will also similarly get accounted for in the Bloomberg Aggregate Index. Because mortgages weren't necessarily a big part of the Federal Reserve portfolio in the past, the Bloomberg Aggregate Index never netted out the amount of mortgages that treasuries have been bu- that, that the Fed has been buying. Uh, and as a result, when the Fed is letting that part of the portfolio run off the mortgage part, it's not actually being accounted for in a rise in the public amount or the indexed amount, rather, of the uh, mortgage portfolio. So as a result, treasuries in the ag are going to go up. Mortgages are going to stay the same from an amount outstanding perspective, which is going to decrease their share, their net weighting in the index. So, so question, Erica, with with mortgage rates as high as they are, you know, the commitment rate close to six percent, and and you know the 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 bank rate dot com uh, national average mortgage rate over six percent right now, uh, as we talk. How does that affect net issuance of mortgages? So, you know, we always have some prepayments, right? When when people just make their normal uh, mortgage payment, they pay some principal, some interest. Um, so there's always some principal pay down. But uh, normally w- when that's paid down, there's then on the other side, people will be getting new mortgages because they're buying new houses or first-time home buyers and the like. Have, have mortgage rates significantly slowed down net issuance? And I'm guessing it has. Um, and, you know, what, what happens? I guess in you know let's crystal ball this and say in 18 months time if interest rates are down by 50 or 100 basis points does issuance pick up significantly because all of a sudden there's a ton of new home buyers yeah I, th- I think you're calling that dynamic pretty pretty accurately I mean gross issuance obviously the amount of mortgages issued in a given month is very dependent on whether there's a refinancing wave going on but net issuance is much more dependent on new entrants to the home 
to the home buying market and you know purchasers, as well as increasing loan sizes, which is one of the things we've seen recently. It's an interesting dynamic, as home prices appreciate as they have so dramatically, you know, twenty percent a year for the last two years. Loan sizes correspondingly increase, which also increases the effective net issuance because there are larger loan mortgages being issued. So in terms of dollar amount, that increases the net issuance. But we're expecting a couple of dynamics to happen here. First of all, you're already seeing the purchase indices and in purchase mortgages and home sales falling. So that's going to somewhat decrease mortgage net issuance or the amount of new mortgages coming into the market. Um, and then on top of that, you know, if loan sizes do in fact go down because home prices start to stagnate or go down, um, or people are just trying to find cheaper houses, as we've seen sometimes. Right, right now the mortgage loan size uh, for the MBA purchase index has actually been falling because even though home appreciation hasn't officially gone negative yet, uh, the affordability issues have pushed people to smaller homes. So if, if the loan sizes also decrease, that could also decrease the amount of net issuance in the mortgage market, which at least will make it somewhat easier for the mortgage uh, investors to absorb what the Fed's no longer buying. So moving on to the questions du jour, because Jay Powell just spoke today to the Cato Institute, reiterating a lot of the discussions that we've talked about on this show over the last month or so. So not much new there. We had um, the European Central Bank hike interest rates by 75 basis points. The Bank of Canada, Angelo, uh, increased uh, interest rates by 75 basis points yesterday, as we record here on the uh, eighth day of September 2022. Angelo, let me let me go to you. So we're going to move a little bit away from, from the mortgage market, in, in, and but we will come back to it. Talk a little bit about Canada, because Canada initially was leading kind of the charge against inflation earlier. Now they're kind of, you know, maybe in the middle of the pack in terms of, uh, in terms of how aggressive they're, they're hiking. But a 75 basis point move yesterday, you, you know, d- does that seem like it's going to end? And, and what's your view on how far the Bank of Canada still has to go in its hiking cycle? Yeah, so the Bank of Canada has now cumulatively hiked uh, 300 basis points uh, since starting in March. Uh, and the, the statement language kind of reiterated uh, the view here at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg Economics, that the Bank of Canada is likely to hike closer to 4% in, in the risk. We still view the risk to the upside, so potentially some some hikes into 2023 as well. So, yes, most of the tightening we do believe is behind us. Or the vast majority of it is behind us. But the Bank of Canada not including words like restrictive uh, in their statement, or we're at a restrictive stance and kind of keep keeping it open, admitting that we're going to hike more, kind of puts, uh, puts uh, throws cold water on the whole idea that they're going to pause imminently. And it really shows that probably around 4% is where where rates are heading there. So the ECB's Lagarde said today that you know they don't they don't know where neutral is where the where the neutral rate is ultimately. Um, any inclination that the Bank of Canada has a, a its own target for where the neutral rate is? Yeah. So the Bank of Canada's target it was just revised um, earlier this year is two to three percent. So th- three and a quarter would theoretically be above neutral. Um, if you if you look at like Eric was talking about, if you look at mortgage rates and where they've been, um, and what that means for for the you know the real economy, is that neutral? Is that restrictive? Pro- mortgage rates right now are probably restrictive, and Erica can correct me if I'm wrong. Other consumer rates, uh, other things that impact the consumer, like gas prices, went up a lot, have now come down. So, in aggregate, financial conditions are tight. The the central banks are trying to make them even tighter. 
so it really depends on uh, you know these neutral rate forecasts, and uh, like we always say, they do really do have a large, uh, really high standard error. And there's a uh, on top of that, there's a one percent percentage range of what is neutral. But I would say, with how interest rate sensitive that economy is, I think their assessment at 325, 350 being restrictive. I, d- I do think their current policy stance is restrictive, and I think if they get to four percent or above, it's going to be even more restrictive and definitely have an impact on uh, you know households in Canada. So quickly, um, the yield curve in Canada, uh, you know how how far inverted will it get? Has it already reached its peak inversion? Like, wh- where? How do you look at the uh, the Canadian uh, rates market? Yeah, so I think in terms of the yield curve, I think uh, it's so it hasn't tightened, it hasn't steepened back as we've seen the the yield curve here in the U.S. steepen back. It's still uh, around fifty basis points inverted at this point. Um, we. We view like 50 to 65 kind of as that as that level of so we think it's going to uh, stay flat and we don't see it getting into positive territory anytime soon. But potentially we have we may have potentially seen that the peak inversion at this point. So Erica, let's go back to you and talk a little bit more about the mortgage market and mortgage rates. So um, clearly the the six-ish percent um, mortgage rate right now is reflective of the fact that that ten-year U.S. Treasuries are upwards of of three and a quarter percent. Maybe we'll move a little bit higher and and, uh, and potentially retest the three and a half percent. And and you know some people think it might go beyond. My my view is you know. Three and a half percent plus or minus ten basis points is probably where we'll peak in, in the ten-year yield. Um, you know, t- talk to us about the mortgage performance over the next six months, and then importantly, how how does that shift? So let's say that the Fed, uh, you know, stops hiking early next year, as we think, you know, a little over four percent in terms of the Fed funds rate, and then keeps things on hold for a year, and then eventually they're going to cut. Right? We don't know exactly when. It could be late twenty-three. It could be twenty twenty-four. But eventually they cut. What tends to happen? And then to mortgage spreads. And let's talk about excess returns here, because we know, obviously, as interest rates go down, you wind up having to positive total returns. But how, did there, how does more, do mortgages tend to perform in an excess return basis compared to, say, the Treasury market as the uh, interest rates are actually going down? Um, you know, we, we can think about excess returns. Uh, pro- spreads are a good proxy for excess return uh, expectations. So, you know, what we can really talk about is whether or not we expect spreads to treasuries for mortgages to tighten or widen if interest rates turn around. And, I, you know, it, it's not an obvious question at any point. But right now, spreads for current coupons are you know, toward, towards the widest they've ever been on a non-super high crisis period. So I think the expectation should be for spreads to tighten as volatility falls and as, you know, the market is able to absorb kind of, you know, whatever extra supply it's not used to absorbing. Um, Matt, again, you know, back to your money manager question, um, one of the investor bases that we expect to take up the slack when the Fed does absorb less than the market is money managers. So the fact that that index dynamic that we mentioned earlier about mortgages falling as a percentage of the index is happening at the moment, you know, could create some near-term headwinds. But eventually, that probably normalizes as money managers decide, asset managers decide that spreads are wide enough to be interesting and to afford a good, you know, break-even rate of return um, investment for them. 
So, um, you know, well, I, I, let me, let me yeah. just, let me just ask about, about that then a little bit. So, so in the current environment, um, you know, so, so we talk about the coupon stack, right? So you have different coupons of agency mortgages, you know, you have mortgages that are at 2% coupons, 3%, 4%, 5%, 6%, et cetera. Um, in, in this environment where the market is a bit challenged, is there an, uh, you know, typically do higher coupons outperform or lower coupons outperform in an environment where you have prepay speeds that are very slow and maybe continuing to slow and and maybe mortgage demand a, a little bit more um, a little bit more muted? Do, do you want to be up in coupon or down in coupon? I guess is the question. I mean, I, I think that gives the advantage to the higher coupon mortgages, especially if you think you know falling volatility might be part of the whole long-term perspective. They have worse convexity, and so they do worse when you know volatility is high. But at the same time, they do offer more carry, and you know greater carry ultimately translates into better returns if volatility falls. Um, you know, it's, it's all again, it's about break-even analysis, and actually, that basis between the higher and the coupon lower coupons has been going. You know, has, has been quite volatile recently. Because the lower coupons underperform perhaps more than they should have when discussions about potential Fed sales, they own mostly lower coupons, you know, was was more dominant in everybody's mind. But then, you know, as as those fears receded, at least that there would be disruptive sales, the higher coupons were no longer being supported by Federal Reserve buying. They started to underperform, um, you know, on higher volatility. So that basis, you know, it moves around. But at this point, if if part of our thought is that volatility would also start to come down, I think that that definitely gives the advantage to the higher coupons, which are trading at pretty wide spreads right now. So we're going to forgo our fun Fed fact segment today because we're going to talk a lot about the Fed here, particularly with with QT coming up. So, um, so a- Angelo, we we know that this month, September, we have now sixty billion dollars of runoff of Treasuries this month, thirty five billion dollar cap of mortgages uh, so far this month. Talk a little bit about and and you you have a piece that's going to come out um, by the time this recording comes out. <laughs> um, be, I, I'm only looking at it because in my email, the editors have gotten back to us with their uh, with their changes. And you know, you note um, talking about this this month's um, uh, Treasury runoff, we don't have enough coupons running off to reach that sixty billion dollars. So the Fed will be rolling off some T bills. So you know, how many T bills will run off the the Fed's portfolio this month? And then um, you know, when uh, you know, how might that change some of the uh, auction dynamics over the the course of the next couple of months? Yeah. So. So we have 43.6 billion of coupons uh, running off this month, and those will run off without replacement. So that means there's going to be no, no add-ons uh, in the coupon auctions. Uh, so that leaves 16.4 billion of T-bills that are gradually uh, maturing this month. They actually started maturing with the September 1 settlement. So we've already seen that dynamic play out, 16.4 billion in total. Basically, the New York Fed is just taking a snapshot of what's maturing, maturing and allowing the maturities to be proportional across those Tuesday, Thursday settlement dates across each month where T-bill, T-bills will need to top off runoff. So we have that this month. We have that next month. Uh, like you said, from a funding market perspective, something we've been seeing, especially with two-year uh, two uh, notes and the amount of uh, investors that are short two-year notes is um, – Large periods of specialness and repo where the two-year note is is trading well below general collateral repo rate levels. And 
the Federal Reserve, through uh, quantitative easing, has had very lumpy maturities and had reinvested as add-on buyers into two-year auctions. And every day, the Fed uh, <coughs> uh, lends two primary dealers up to 90% of its securities holdings. So it's actually been able to provide a backstop to uh, dealers in uh, that uh, are trying to source these two-year notes or or notes across the curve because the Fed buys proportionate across the curve uh, with uh, issuance is what drives how much they actually do uh, purchase as an add-on. Uh, in September, in October, we're not going to see any purchases. Uh, so, okay, the refunding, uh, the coupon, the, the 10-year, 20-year, and 30-year did see some buying um, last uh, at the auction. So those the Fed will able to will be able to lend that that they bought in August, but for all the other uh, issues that are issued on a monthly basis, and we get a new on the run every month, you will see the Fed won't be able to provide a sec lending backstop to the repurchase agreement market uh, for those issues. And we've seen uh, the two year, uh, as I said earlier, the two year is really the one to pay close attention to. Uh, before next month's auction. Yeah, and I think that might be one of the reasons why we've seen this significant amount of volatility in the yield curve, in part because a lot of times there's been these short squeezes effectively in the two-year note. And and like you say, Angelo, and I think this is underappreciated, um, and we've talked about this a lot back in 2017 when they were doing quantitative tightening uh, the first time, we talked about the, the fact that the Fed's portfolio is important for the plumbing of the financial sector. And, and like you mentioned correctly, that um, when the Federal Reserve hold some of these assets, they lend it lend it out when um, when those securities are trading special in repo and, and thereby uh, you know, effectively adding supply to the short base that's built up in, in those securities. And that's not going to be the case uh, going forward for a lot of these securities and, and even less in, in tenure notes. So if the if there was a big short base, for example, in, in the, even the on-the-run tenure, they're still going to own a lot less now than they did when they were buying uh, during quantitative uh, during quantitative easing or just letting their portfolio um, uh, or when they were just rolling over their portfolio. Um, anything else, uh, Angelo, that you'd like to discuss today? Yeah, so that, I think that 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 dynamic's interesting with TENS, where we see the new issue starts to get special in repo right before the first reopening. Um, like I said, they're still going to be buying 10 years at those refunding auctions. There won't be uh, doing add-on purchases at the reopenings, but the re- reopenings are sources of supply to the market who is, could be short 10-year notes or need to source 10-year notes in the market. So the reopenings tend to uh, lower the demand for 10-year uh, repo or uh, quench the demand for 10 years uh, in repo. But that is something also to definitely to look at. And I also think that the SEC lending provides, you know, the kind of the public with in the in theory, we, you know, we're trying to increase uh, market transparency in the market in Especially in like the repurchase agreement marketing, I do think that stock lending gives us uh, market participants who may not have as much color of what's going on into repo some information about notes that are trading, uh, notes and bills that are trading uh, special. So I do think it provides some uh, re- uh, information for uh, market participants at large and and the public on a on a daily basis. And that leads me to some really nerdy stuff that uh, I know Tom Keen from Bloomberg Radio and TV would be uh, happy to hear me talk about, and <laughs> maybe not on one of his shows, but but at least here. And and that's if we talk about uh, the ten year note and those auctions, as as you correctly uh, say, Angelo. If you wind up seeing a particularly strong 10-year auction or 30-year auction over the next couple of months because the Fed doesn't actually own a lot of the 
those securities, um, that could really be a sign that there really is a collateral uh, mismatch and, and a big collateral need. So you can wind up seeing uh, you know very strong ten-year auctions even though the market's selling off, right? So there's this one, there's these strange dynamics that can happen because basically people are short notes and they and they've been failing to deliver them, so they need to buy those notes at the auction in order to um, avoid paying this 300 basis point penalty fee that they have to pay if they fail to deliver uh, bonds into a into a uh, a short sale. So um, so there's a lot of different uh, different dynamics that are going on. So so some of it may be very technical. So don't take a good auction as meaning that everyone wants to buy the market, and don't take a bad auction to mean that everyone hates the market, um, because some of these supply demand dynamics and the plumbing that's going on might be actually the uh, the, the real effect. And we actually saw that last September when uh, when we had a really strong uh, seven-year auction that was surprisingly strong, and, and one of the reasons for that was a um, uh, significant collateral squeeze, as we found out um, found out a little bit later. Uh, with that, I'm going to end it here. Uh, Erica Edelberg and uh, Angelo Monolatos, thanks very much for coming back on the Fic Focus podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. With that, uh, until next time, be well. <laughs>